Our reading this evening is from Psalm 14, and that's page 549 in the Church Bible. Psalm 14. For the director of music of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. But before I begin, let's, let's pray and ask God for his help. God, our Heavenly Father, as we study your word tonight, would you speak to our hearts to understand the seriousness of sin so that we can appreciate the solution you have brought. In Jesus' name, amen. We don't have to go very far to know instinctively that things are not really as they ought to be. Uh, We turn on our TVs or radios in the morning and the latest atrocity is announced. Or closer to home over the last few weeks, we've had that whole furore over tax evasion. And thinking about tax evasion, it's been interesting to observe how politicians and some commentators have talked about it and talked about tax avoidance as immoral, even if tax avoidance is legal. So then I wonder, if they appeal to a higher morality, is there one? What is right and what is wrong? Human beings just can't help themselves calling for justice at wrongdoing, can they? It seems to be built into us. Those of us with children or grandchildren might think of the countless times that we've heard them cry out, that's not fair. And if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we do the same? We might gift wrap it slightly differently and use slightly different language, or or we might not, but it amounts to much the same thing. And then you could also take a look at all the different laws that we have in this country. I tried this week to find out just how many laws there are in England. Um, When you Google it, you don't actually get a straight answer. So I checked out both the Parliament and government legislation websites. And the closest I got, after admit not a very long search, was that in the last 200 years, there have been 4,225 Acts of Parliament. So that's where all our laws are written down. So you can multiply up from that how many laws there have been over the last 200 years. 
And that list doesn't include such things as statutory instruments, whatever they are, or church measures, and I don't really know what they are either, but maybe Clive does. Um, and I haven't included um, Act of Parliament before 1800, of which there are some which are still relevant today. So I don't know exactly how many have been repealed. And I should also add that there was a footnote to the website which said that the records were only complete after 1988, which makes you wonder exactly what the government does now. But we have literally thousands of laws governing our lives. We have to set boundaries for our behaviour. We just can't be trusted to manage our lives for ourselves and settle our disputes with justice and without self-interest. Our psalmist says, there is no one who does good, not even one. That's the charge laid before us tonight in our reading from the Bible. It's shocking, isn't it? There is no one. Take a look at it with me, if you will, at verses 2 and 3 from our reading from Psalm 14. I'll read it again. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So if you imagine it, God looks down from heaven at every single person on earth. He looks at all from the smallest baby to someone's favourite grandma. He looks from the homeless person sleeping rough to the mega-rich celebrity at a charity um, fundraiser. From an aid worker working in a refugee camp somewhere on the borders of Greece to policymakers at number 10 Downing Street. And he looks to you and to me. Is there any, any at all, anywhere who do good, he asks. And the answer is emphatic and absolute and profoundly sad. He says, there is no one, guilty, all, every single one. Now, the Bible has a word to explain the reason for this. It's a terribly unfashionable word today. It's sin. Now, it's possible that you've been offended by these words. Are things really that bad? Is everyone affected? I mean, you might be thinking, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as a tax evader. But if you're a visitor here tonight, you might also be a bit sceptical about all this church and Christianity stuff. And perhaps you're thinking at this point something like this, that you know, we're a bunch of hypocrites, brimming full of self-righteousness, telling the rest of us what we're doing wrong. Or perhaps if you're a regular here, you might be thinking, come on, Andrew, this is all Old Testament language. We now have Jesus who loves us. Let's not waste all this time on sin talk and concentrate instead on Jesus' love and grace for us. Less of the negative and more of the positive. Well, I invite you to spare your judgment for a little longer. This passage leaves no one out. There's no place for self-righteous 
smugness. It includes everyone. And in fact, if you think this psalm is providing a very bleak picture of humanity, I've got some more bad news for you. When the Bible repeats things twice, it's a bit like the equivalent today of writing in bold, underlined. It's saying, sit up and take note, this is really important. So what if it repeats itself three times? Do you get the picture? These words of Psalm 14 are repeated almost word for word, again in Psalm 53. And they're explained yet again by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. God clearly thinks that this is really important. He's got his megaphone out and he's shouting at us. He really wants us to sit up and pay attention. And what he has to say isn't going to be comfortable. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle John says much the same thing. He writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, if we don't realise the enormity of our predicament, we can't appreciate the plan God has put in place to put it right. Or if we think about a medical analogy, if we doubt the diagnosis, we're unlikely to take the treatment. So what is sin? Well, the Bible uses several words that we, all dis- that we translate into English as sin. It can be things like failing to hit a target, slipping up or making a blunder, stepping over the line, or just failing to keep the law. All these things imply that there is a clear standard of behaviour that we all fall short of. Now, the Bible acknowledges that people have different standards, but people can't even keep their own standards consistently. Think of the number of times that you've complained about a person's actions and then done exactly the same thing. How would you fare if we were to play back every moral judgment that you've made and compare them with your own actions? How often have you tutted about gossip in the office or at school and then engaged in exactly the same thing a few days later when it's you that's got that juicy bit of news? Or think about when you became angry at that inconsiderate driver who cut you up on Blackdown Roundabout. But then you thought nothing of disobeying the speed restrictions on the M3 because for once the traffic was light. And let's face it, everyone else around you was doing it. Or let me give you another example from the life of Jesus. You might remember in John chapter 8 an encounter that Jesus had with a crowd that was about to stone to death a woman that they'd caught committing adultery. Now that seems very harsh, but that was the punishment back then. Those indignant, morally upright people wanted Jesus to condemn her as well. And what was his response? Well, he said to the crowd, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Well, what happened? First, the older ones in the crowd left. Perhaps it was the wisdom that comes with age. In any case, 
the penny dropped for them too. And then gradually, the younger ones left as well, until only the woman and Jesus remained. Those people were ashamed, were ashamed into realising that they were as deserving of punishment as the woman. Now today we hear lots of talk of league tables, don't we? And we have them of our own when it comes to sin. We have hierarchies of wrongdoing, don't we? I mean, up there at the top come those things like child abuse and murder and the like. Whereas down at the bottom of the league table are those things that have sometimes been described by people as respectable sins, like pride or accumulation of possessions. I don't know about you, but I suspect that at the top of the list are those things that you're less tempted to do, whereas we all quietly forget about those at the bottom. But that's not how God views it. He made us, he sets the standard, and we all fall short. He says that even our best acts are spoiled. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, God says about us, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. It's not so much that absolutely everything we do is bad, Rather, that every aspect of our lives is tainted by sin. You see, our problem is that we take sin too lightly. And why? Because we reject the God who made us and live for ourselves. Take a look back at verse 1 from our reading tonight. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Now in the original language, the text is even more emphatic. Quite literally, the fool says, no God. That's more like saying, get lost. And why is he described as a fool? Well, the answer can be found in Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul makes it clear that people know that there is a God and just choose to deny it. Why else do people cry out for justice if our existence is just down to biology and chance? Surely it only makes sense if there is a moral heart to the universe. And to deny God, that source of morality, is utter foolishness. But that's our default position. It's our natural state. Our culture screams that humankind is at the centre of the universe. In the words of that Sinatra classic, we all want to sing, I did it my way. Now sin appeared when the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, wanted to be like God and chose to disobey him. And we, their offspring, have been doing the same ever since. We might even say that we believe in God. But to what extent are we paying lip service to him? 
Are we Christians here on a Sunday, in our th- but in our thoughts and actions for the rest of the week? Are we just practical atheists? To what extent does pleasing God affect what I think, what books I read, what programs I watch on TV, and what I say or do? And if we're in any doubt about what Jesus thinks, hear his words from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You've heard it, sorry, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the bar on sin far higher than we like to think. Now, thankfully, you can't see into my heart, and I can't see into yours. Although, to my shame... Krista, my wife, and my children can see all too much of my sin. But they still don't see all of it. But there is one who can and does, and who one day will lay it all out there to be seen. God sees all. He knows our hearts. So we've seen that sin is at the heart of human behaviour. Have you grasped the extent and seriousness of it. At its root is our rebellion against the God who made us. Now, we live in a culture, don't we, that's obsessed by physical health and fitness. But I wonder, are you and I paying as much attention to our spiritual health? You may not have high blood pressure or angina, but are you taking note of your heart condition called sin? Now, introspection and self-examination is perhaps not very fashionable today, and it can be overplayed. But I wonder, do we spend enough time examining our hearts, identifying and rooting out sin? Now, in times of old, Christian believers were encouraged before taking communion to spend time examining themselves and thinking about their sinfulness. So in the Church of England's old order of service, the Book of Common Prayer, the minister used to say the following, and I'm going to read part of it now. It's, it's very old language, but I'm sure most of you are avid students of Shakespeare, so you will have got the gist of it, especially if you were watching The Hollow Crown last night. This is what the, this is what the Book of Common Prayer says. The minister would say, It's my duty to exhort you to consider the dignity of that holy mystery and the great peril of the unworthy receiving thereof, and so to search and examine your own consciences, and that not lightly, so that you may come holy and clean to such a heavenly feast. First, to examine your lives and conversations by the rule of God's commandments, and whereinsoever you shall perceive yourselves to have offended either by will, word, or deed, there to bewail your own sinfulness and to confess yourselves to Almighty God with full purpose of amendment of life, 
And if you shall perceive your offences to be such as are not only against God, but also against your neighbours, then you shall reconcile yourselves unto them, being ready to make restitution and satisfaction according to the utmost of your powers for all injuries and wrongs done by you to any other. Therefore, if any of you be a blasphemer of God, a hinderer or slanderer of his word, an adulterer, or be in malice or envy, or in any other grievous crime, repent you of your sins, or else, not, or else come not to this holy table, lest, after taking of that holy sacrament, the devil enter into you as he entered into Judas, and fill you full of all iniquities, and bring you to destruction both of body and soul. The language might be old-fashioned, and it's rather tricky for our modern ears to understand, but it's still sobering stuff, isn't it? And I end up asking myself, do I spend enough time on my knees before God, asking him to forgive me, to examine and eradicate sin from my heart? Now, many find it helpful to be accountable to one another, perhaps in a prayer triplet or in home groups, it's good to have a good Christian friend who will ask those difficult questions, such as, so what are you looking at when you surf the web late at night? Is reading those fashion magazines such a great idea if they're giving you false ideas about beauty? Is that latest purchase something that you really need or just something that you wanted? Or to parents, are you spending as much time teaching your children about Jesus as you are about ferrying them to ballet, swimming, football, water painting, piano, conversational Japanese? Is that all? Is that relationship what Jesus expects of one of his followers? I'm sure we could go on and add to that list. If we return briefly to our passage tonight, the writer looks forward to the day when rescue from the wicked will come. If you look at verse 7, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, we're fortunate because we can know today that that rescue has come. And we remember it in the Lord's Supper tonight. But we've seen that the wicked aren't just those who are out there. It's us too. Jesus' rescue isn't just, against, isn't just from other people. It's from the consequences of our own sinfulness. But if you want to know more about that, you're going to need to come back over the next few weeks where others will unpack it some more. But for now, let's pray. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we fail to see the depth and extent of our sin. Help us to see it, confess it, and in your mercy and by your Holy Spirit, purge us of it.
we are helpless on our own and look to Jesus for our rescue, in whose name we pray. Amen.